Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to get together and to look at your word. We ask you to show us what you would want us to see through these scriptures and help us to understand your word. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that you have, that as you have received of us how you ought to work to pl- walk to please the Lord, so you would abound more and more. For you know that what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus Christ, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of compucance, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond <coughs> and defraud his brother in any manner, in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. So we're going to stop there. So he goes furthermore. So this is referring to the previous chapter, which we talked about. Paul got, uh, was so burdened by the people that he sent Timothy, and Timothy came back with a good report. And he says, okay, there's been a really good report. Now let's continue on with this, this statement. Uh, so he's, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus... This idea of beseeching, begging, requesting. This is a very strong word. He goes, we're highly encouraging you. We really are begging you to do this. And then he goes, exhort you. And exhort's kind of an interesting word. It says, call alongside to console. It's the same word that the Holy Spirit is, that he's the paraclete, the one who calls us alongside. And Paul says, we're exhorting you. We're calling you alongside of us to be like us. Um, by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and please God, so you would do it, so you would abound more and more. He goes, we showed you how to walk. We taught you how to walk with God. And he says, and you are doing it, but we want you to abound exceedingly, overflow more and more. And this is the great desire of the teachers, and and when we study the word, we want to watch people grow more and more, all right? We can never get tired and complacent with where we are with God. He wants us to continue, and this uh, abound is to overflow, and he goes, I want you to overflow more and more. So he's saying, keep growing. And this is what I keep telling us all the time. I want to see us go the next step, the next step, not just get complacent. We learn to love people, and God says, okay, now we're going to take you to the next. We're going to bring somebody a little harder to love, and we're going to bring somebody a little harder to love. He teaches us to forgive, and he goes, okay, now I'm going to bring somebody that's a little harder to forgive. He says, I want you to keep growing. God says his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are, are higher than us. He is always going to be higher, and we can never obtain where God wants us to be. And we might get there, and we think, okay, God, I've arrived. And God says, okay, we'll let you sit there for a moment. And he says, now, let's take you to the more and more. You're there. You're overflowing. You're you're doing well. And Paul is not saying they're doing bad. He's saying, you are doing great. You are abounding, but I want you to go more and more. 
And this is the thing that God is always asking us to do. Keep growing. Keep moving forward. Keep advancing. Keep becoming more like him with every passing trial, every passing event. And this is what Paul's saying. Furthermore, you guys have been doing really good. He's given us a great report, but I want to see you abound more and more. And this is where that great movement comes, where we look at our lives and we keep growing, keep moving forward, and we go, and we kind of look at our life and say, God, I used to think I knew you, and now I know you even better. God, I used to think that I knew how to forgive people. Now I know how to really forgive. I, I think I, I used to know your grace. Now I really know your grace. And God says, you're only beginning. I want you to abound more and more. Where he keeps taking us to the next level, the next step. To fully understand God's grace, we will never get there. Hopefully we get to know his grace more and more with each passing each passing year, each passing day. But, you know, we get to where, God, I really thought I knew you. I thought I knew your grace. I thought I knew your mercy, but now I really know it. And then later on, we're going to have that same statement. God, I used to think that I knew your grace, and that, but now I know it even more. And this is Paul's prayer for them. Keep growing. Keep moving forward. We cannot get complacent because it's been said over and over that when we stand still with God, we're actually moving backwards because we're going to get familiar with God. We're going to, to not keep moving forward with him. And as he moves forward, we need to keep moving forward with him. And each one of us are in a different state because God deals with each one of us individually, but he still says, keep moving forward, keep going deeper, keep moving on. And Paul goes, you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. So he says, we gave you some rules. Now his rules were sim pretty simple, we find out. In verse 3 it says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Real simple rule, kind of. <laughs> All right. He says, this is the will of God, the desire, the wishes, the purpose, the inclination of God. God has desires for us. He is not just saying, okay, I saved you, now just go do whatever you want. He says, I have a will for you. And he says, this is your sanctification. You're being set aside. You're being made holy. God is going to spend our entire life as we walk with him sanctifying us, making us righteous, making us holy. And he says, this is your first part. Abstain from fornication. Now this word for fornication is not really the right word for here. In the Greek, the word is pornia. And that means all sexual sins. Not just Outside of, outside of marriage, but this would include uh, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, uh, any, any sexual sin is included in here. Paul is talking to the, these, these are Greeks that he's talking to, and you've got to push yourself in the Greek place. The Greeks had no idea, like the Jews, of moderation and purity. 
To the Jew, it was a very big deal to not go be seen naked, not be seen even close to naked. The Greeks had no problem with that. In the Greek Olympics, you, you performed in the Olympics naked. I mean, they had no problem with nudity. They had no problem with sexual, sexual activity. And Paul is saying, we gave you one commandment, and that is to be basically not Greek. Not be like the world. In our world, we are becoming more like the Greek mentality. And it's becoming more and more in that, in that way. We're seeing less and less clothing on people, less and less modesty on people, even amongst Christians who should be following this idea of modesty. And he's saying, you need to be modest. You need to abstain from all forms of lust and enticement. And this is something that is very important for us to understand. God has called us to be sanctified, to be holy. And that also means that we don't tempt one another. <laughs> All right? And this is very important, you know, that we don't tempt one another. Whether it is through sexual temptation or, you know, there are Christians that say, well, you know, if you really understood grace, you wouldn't have a problem with doing this. That's a temptation. If God has told you not to do something, it's wrong. And we need to be careful of that. Just because I have freedom to do something or you have freedom to do something does not mean that it's okay for everybody. Because God has other people. He says, no, you cannot do these things. And it might have to do with their past. If somebody has been very promiscuous and, very, and used to dressing in, in, in modest ways, they have to be overly careful about how they dress or how they see others dressed, because they're going to have that temptation in a greater way than somebody who's never had that problem. And they're going, well, I have no problem with it. I don't see why anybody... And, and they're going, you know, be careful how we live our life with everybody, because we are sanctified. We are to have a higher standard in the way that we present ourselves. And this is going to be true of everything we do. And I warn us, be careful of what we read, what we watch, what we listen to, because all of those things have an effect on our sanctification. It'll change the way we think. And the closer we draw to God, the more we're going to look at some of those things and say, no, I can no longer do those things. Not out of law and legalism, but just because I'm drawing closer to God and having problems with having a bad lifestyle or a lesser lifestyle and this is important there are and I've said this over and all I I'm a pastor but I've never had any desire to go drink and I have no desire to go drink and say be a bad example somebody going well you know pastor pastors I, I saw a pastor out there drinking that will make some people fall and it's not out of legalism I just have no desire for it number one I know me I know the, the way I am, and if you know me, I, I have this very strong compulsion. I, I do not eat one cookie out of the bag. I'll eat the entire bag. I don't eat one, one donut out of, the, out of the box of donuts. I'll eat the entire box. Okay? That's my... That's, so if I was to drink, I'd be in trouble. And I know that. And I don't have any desire to do so anyway, but I know that if I did... It, I would be an alcoholic, I would be a drunk. It, would not be, a, it not, would not be a question for me. So 
we need to be careful. And each one of us has areas where we know we cannot start. Cookies. It could be something that, it could be our hobby. We get into our hobby and we get so wrapped up in our hobby that we overindulge in it. We need to be very careful because God's saying, I am sanctifying you unto myself. And we want to be in that place where we are abstaining, abstaining from all these things. And it says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Vessel here is literally body. All right, it's just a Greek, Greek word for body. All right, that we possess our body in sanctification. And this possess literally means to acquire and to keep. Uh, has the implication of marriage. All right, uh, and he's talking to people. He's talking about being fornicate, you know, avoiding all fornication. He's saying, and Paul at one point is very clear in, in one of the other epistles, if you can't keep yourself pure, go get married. <laughs> you know, he's very clear. If you cannot be pure, it's better to, to be married than to burn in, in lust. Okay, and here he's saying basically the same thing. Possess yourself. If you cannot control yourself, go get married and have somebody that you can have these activities with. You know, if you can control yourself and have no problem with it, then it's not a problem and that's what he's saying. You're to be sanctified and to have this honor. And the word for honor is to value, to place a value on something. And this is what God says. If we can't understand the value God places on us, we've got a problem. We have such a high value that God places on us that he died for us. And we really do need to begin to understand who we are in God's sight. Yes, we understand that in reality, Satan is right. We are worthless, terrible sinners that don't deserve anything. But you know what? That is not how God sees us. God places a value on humans that sometimes I don't even understand myself. I don't understand why he values me. Because I don't have anything to give to God. I am a sinner, and I know that I'm a sinner. But God says, I love you so much, and I place such a high value on you that I died for you. And we can't understand that value. We don't understand it, but you know, we need to actually accept it and believe it. God says we are precious, especially when we're saved. We have accepted him and he is in us. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and God says we are perfect. We are valuable. We are precious. We are adopted. We are his darling children. We need to really begin to understand who we are in Christ. And we've, we've had the whole lesson on the 51 things that happened to you at the moment of salvation. There, there are things that happen to us and we need to be able to understand how precious we are. He has bought us. He has redeemed us. He has made us one with him. He has adopted us into his family. He has given us the Holy Spirit. He says we are perfect. We really do need to understand who we are in Christ. And the more we understand who we are in Christ, the better and closer we can draw to God. 
Because if I never see myself the way God sees myself and sees me, then I don't want to draw close to God. If I see myself as an awful, terrible person that has, doesn't deserve God, then am I going to draw close to God? No, because as I draw close to him, I'm going to see myself even worse. Because I see my sin, and if I see my sin, then I'm going to feel worse, and I'm going to draw away from God. But the more I see myself the way God sees me, righteous, perfect, then I'm going, okay, God, yeah, I'm not perfect. I'm not there yet, but God, you say I am, and I draw closer to you. And then as I start realizing who I am in Christ, then I can start realizing who you are in Christ as well. And that will change the way that I deal with other Christians. Because if I start realizing who I am in Christ, and then I realize that my brothers and sisters are the same, it should allow me to treat them totally different. I will be willing to exhort them. I will be willing to give them forgiveness. I will be willing to give grace because that's what I expect. I expect God is going to forgive me and give me grace so I now can show that grace to others. And this is where it's important because I get to know who God says I am and what he, how he treats me, I now treat the rest of the body of Christ the same way. I, we love him because he first loved us and because he first loved us, I now can love others. And because when I learn his love and what love truly is, I can express that love to others. I learn forgiveness and now I can pass that forgiveness on to others. And without Christ, we can never truly love anybody. Because human love always is love expecting. I love you because I get something out of it. I like you because I get something. You're nice to me, you're kind to me, and if you're not nice to me or kind to me, then I'm not going to like you. That's human love. God's love is objective love. We learn to love one another because God says to love one another. And he, so, and he shows us what that love means. He loves us even though we don't deserve it. He created us and loves us knowing that we were going to sin. That blows my mind. That God created man knowing that man was going to sin and still created man knowing that he was going to have to die to redeem man. And he does it willingly because he chooses to love us. That is the love that we must have one to another. That is the love we must have toward our spouse. If we have any other kind of love toward each other, we're going to be disappointed. I love you, I'm nice to you, I'm kind to you, and you're mean to me and nasty to me and never show it back to me. My human nature is going to say, I quit. But God says, I have redeemed and sanctified you. I have put my Holy Spirit in you so that you can love other people the way I love you. And that love changes people's hearts. That love is what people will test and challenge are you truly going to love me when I'm not being nice? The world does this to us all the time. You say that you care. You say that, you're, that you love me. You say that you're, you're, God's grace is going to be good for me. Are you going to show that to me when I am being mean to you? Are you going to turn the other cheek that God has asked you to turn? And you know, we all know it's difficult. It is not easy to love that way. 
It is not easy to forgive somebody who's doing it on purpose and being mean on purpose to see if we're going to still love them. And you know, the sad thing is we fail so often, but God says, I still love them. And he's going to teach us. And the closer we draw to God, the more we're going to learn to love everybody, the more we're going to learn to be forgiving, and the better we get at it. And I hope that you understand what this means, because the longer you walk with God, the better you get at it, and the more you love people. But you know, at the same time, it does hurt. It hurts to love somebody and not see them respond. It hurts to forgive somebody and have them keep doing wrong. But you know, the more we draw close to God, the more we learn how he feels when we do it to him. You know, none of us are perfect toward God. All of us reject him in some way, somehow. And he starts showing us how to do this, and then we can learn how much we hurt God because we see how much it hurts. God loves us so much. And you know what? Being his children, he empowers us to do the right thing because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And it says, I have given you the power to be righteous. I have given you the power to walk in holiness. I have given you the power to be sanctified. And then we don't live in that power because we don't recognize the power that we have. None of us do. No matter how far along we are, we don't fully recognize the power that we have been given because the Holy Spirit indwells us. It is possible for us to walk a perfect life. We don't, but we can because the Holy Spirit indwells us and sanctifies us and honors us because he places great value on us. Do we fully understand the high price that God places on us? And the answer is no. I don't care how much a price you put on yourself, you're still much lower than what God puts on you. And the more we grow, the more we understand the price and the more we understand who God is. But even then, just as I've said, no matter how big you think God is, you're too small. No matter how strong you think God is, you're, you're too, he's too weak in your mind. I don't care how big it is, and the longer you walk with him, the bigger he gets, and the stronger he gets, and the more omnipresent he gets, and the more all-knowing he gets, and yet, because he is infinite, we can't even comprehend infinity. We can't comprehend God because he is so much more than anything we comprehend. I used to think 30 years ago that I had a big God. The God that I believe in now is much bigger than he was 30 years ago, and I still don't even comprehend how big God is. I used to think of God as being really omnipresent, and as you all have said, I have moved him from just everywhere present to every time present, and I think I'm still too small in how present he is. He is present if there's more than one universe, as, as our physics is telling us. He's, he's God of all of those. He's God of every dimension, and he's present in all the, all the universes, all the dimensions. And if there's anything beyond that, he's God of those. You know, so we get this idea that no matter what we think of God, we are too small. He is, we, we, under, we think we understand his grace because we're beginning to understand his grace. We be, think we understand his love because he loves us so much that he died for us. And we're only scratching the surface of his love. We're only scratching the surface of his grace. 
And this is what overflows. And Paul has said in that second verse, you know, I want you to abound more and more. You get to know his grace. I want you, and you're, and you're overflowing. It's, it's overflowing, but, but I want you to go beyond. Understand it more and more. Understand it deeper. And then he goes in verse 5, not in the lust of concupiscence as the Gentiles which know not God. And this word is something that we don't use. I'm sure that every one of us use this word concupiscence in our, in our vocabulary every day. It is literally, huh? <laughs> it's an eager desire for what is evil. An evil desire for what is evil. Concupiscence. It's hard. It's yeah. But it, and not, not only is it an evil desire for it, he goes, and the lust of it. So not only do I have an eager desire for evil, he goes, I have a lustful desire for this. For this. So he's almost doubling it up. He's going, don't have this, e this desire. The world has this eager desire for what is forbidden. The sad thing is how many Christians have evil desires for what is forbidden. And he's really strong when he puts lust in front of it, which is a hard desire for it. So he goes, you have a hard, eager desire <laughs> for what is evil. Very powerful. And he says, we as Christians should not have this in us. All right? This is not how we are. He goes, this is the way the world acts. And it's going to take time for us to get this idea out of our life. How do we do it? Well, number one, be, be careful what we feed our mind with. If we're feeding our mind on the world's thoughts, we're going to feed this, this evil desire. And this is very true, and this is why we need to be careful about what we read, what, we, what TV shows we watch, what movies we watch, what kind of music we listen to. Will we change completely overnight? Absolutely not. I've shared with you, it took me years to get to where I am now where I virtually do nothing but listen to messages on the, on the radio. I love to listen to Christian speakers. I do not like listening to music. Is there anything wrong with the Christian music? Not necessarily. But I am looking to be taught as I listen to the music, uh, listen to the radio. I'm filling my mind with God's word. I've gotten to the place where I don't like watching television even the quote-unquote good shows of the past. Because I look at them and saying, God, there was nothing redemptive in those shows. Now, am I saying you're going to jump right out and, and join? No, I'm going to say eventually God will get you to the place where you'll look at it and say, this isn't so great. This isn't good. You know, and you'll get to the place that you're going to the more and more and, and saying, I don't, you know, God, I don't want to do this. I don't, you know. And oftentimes, and I've said this, often our choice between God is not between good and evil. Good and evil are easy decisions for us as Christians, usually, as we grow, because we go, ah, that's wrong. God says that's wrong. Our decisions that are really hard for us as Christians is between good and best. And Satan, if he can't keep us from doing evil, he'll try to get us to settle for good. Good. 
And God is saying, I want what's best for you. And this is what Paul's saying. I want you to go the more and more. He goes, I don't want you to stop at good. I want you to keep going and get to best. And we start going from, from evil to good. Then we go from good to better. And then we go to better to best. And it takes a long time to get there. And I'm not even sure that when we hit what we think is best, that we've hit best. Because God says, I've still got something better for you. And he keeps going on the more and more. And this, this statement stuck out with me. I've never noticed it as much until I read this and studied it this week. Twice in here, he's going to say, I want you to go from more to more. And he says, keep moving on. We cannot get stagnant with God. He wants us to move on beyond and not get stuck in lust, not get stuck in the good. Satan knows that once we get saved, he's lost us. And Satan's goal for Christians is to get them to just sit in the pew. If he can get them to, if they've got to go to church, he's, he's okay if they just sit in the pew and don't do anything. And he's, he's lost their soul. They're going to heaven. They're not going to, he hasn't kept them from going to God. But if all he can do, you know, his goal then is to go, okay, I lost you, but if I can just get you, I'd really not like you going to church at all. But if you really got to go to church, I just want you sitting in the pew. Hear lots of good stuff, but don't do anything with it. If he can't get you to stay just in the pew, he's going to try to get you just doing good things. Sometimes with Christians, he'll try to get you so busy that you burn yourself out. Been there, done that. Where I got so busy, I was doing everything because I felt I needed to, and some of that goes into works. All right, God, I'm just going to be really busy for you. I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can for you. And then you kind of burn yourself out, and Satan says, okay, now, uh, see, this wasn't what you thought it was. It wasn't, and, and a lot of times then people burn themselves out, and they become pew sitters or leave the church completely. Because they go, oh, this work stuff just wasn't, wasn't what it's cracked out to be. Do what God has told you to do, whatever that might be. There are some people that they are just prayer warriors. I say just prayer warriors. They're probably the most important person in the church. All right? And all they do is pray. And most people will never know who they are. They are active prayer warriors. And, I, and if somebody tells me they're a prayer warrior, I'm, I, I'm not sure I'm going to believe it. Now, if I ask them to pray and their prayer gets answered, I know that they're a prayer warrior. Prayer warriors get their prayers answered. They may not do anything in the church. They may not even be known in the church to the people, but God knows them. There are people whose job is just a simple one. They're the ones that are going to take care of the grounds. They're going to be doing the repair work. They're going to be the ones doing the cleaning. Those people are very important. Oftentimes, they're not known by anybody other than a handful of people in the church that watch them do it. Because usually they're not shouting out, look at me, I did the cleaning. And if they are, they're doing it for the wrong reason. You know, and these, are important. these people are important to the body of Christ. There are those who are encouragers. They are the ones that tell people, hey, I just really like what you're doing and I appreciate what you're doing. And they're good at it. And they're called by God to encourage. There's those who are called to teach. There are, you know, each person, and God has a place for everybody in the body of Christ. Don't ever think that whatever God has called you to do is unimportant. The person who's cleaning the church, if they stopped cleaning the church, it wouldn't take long before somebody would know that nobody's doing it. All right? They may not know who the name of the person doing it is, 
But it wouldn't take them long to see that there's cobwebs everywhere and there's dust everywhere and there's, you know, the floors haven't been swept and mopped for, for, for weeks. It doesn't take long. There's certain jobs that are not noticed, but when they're not done, they're noticed. Uh, take that to the body. If, you're, if your kidney stop cleaning out your, your blood system, you'll notice quick, quick enough because you'll start getting sick. You know, how many of us think about our kidneys and what they do? You know, they're just something in our body that unless we know somebody who's had problems with dialysis or, you know, are aware of the problem, we really never think about our kidneys. But the kidneys are very important in our body. You know, what do we think about? Our hands, our fingers, our eyesight, our hearing. You know, most of us never think about our kidneys, our liver. <laughs> uh, you know, those internal parts that we never see until they stop working. And then we find out, wow, uh, there's something really important in there <laughs> that, that I never thought was all that important. There are people in the body of Christ that are those parts. We never think about them. We never know about them, but they are very vital to the body of Christ. People will look at the pastors or the Sunday school teachers or the, or the women's teachers and all these and go, wow, they're really important. Look at them, they're, they're special. Well, they're special as far as their job goes, but they're no more special than the person who is not seen. And God is going to reward by his standard. And sometimes that person you see is really not being blessed at all because they're not doing what God has told them fully. It's pretty easy to go up and stand up and teach once you learn how to do it. <laughs> uh, you know, and we think at first it's hard. You know, uh, and I understand. I remember when it took me 15, 20 hours of study to do a one, you know, 30 minute to an hour presentation. Now as I've studied more and more, now I only study about five to 10 hours each <laughs> for each hour. But it has been learned. And it's because I've studied for 40 plus years, you know, almost, almost 50 years, <laughs> that it be, has become easier. But you, it takes time, and it takes development of our skills. Somebody does not learn how to exhort people in one day. It takes practice, and it's very stumbling. Have you ever tried to give somebody an exhortation and say you're doing a really good job, and you stumble over your words, and they look at you like, what? You know, how come? You know, have you, how long has it been since you've prayed for an hour or two? how easy, how hard that is. We get together on the first Saturday of the month and we pray for an hour. That is not the easiest thing to do for most people, to pray for an entire hour. Most people are done praying after about five, 10 minutes. We learn to pray. The hymn we sing, Sweet Hour of Prayer, is kind of funny because not too many people spend an hour in prayer anymore. Spurgeon said there will come a time when people will not endure two hours of teaching. We are in that world right now in, in our day where if we go over an hour in church, in some churches, you'll have people literally walking out of church because you went over an hour. And that's not even teaching for the whole hour. That includes the time they sang. So if you preach for more than 10, 15, 20 minutes, they're ready to walk out the door because they're just not ready to hear. This is important for us to understand that God wants more. He wants more out of us. He wants us to spend more time with him. 
I've had several things that God things that God has taken out of my life, not because they were evil or bad, but his question would come to me, do you want to do this or spend more time with me? And it's like, well, you know, well, the first time he asks is almost always, no, I don't want to give up because I enjoy what I was doing. But then it got to the place, you know what, I think I really would like to spend more time with you, God. Yeah, I think I will give that up. You know, uh, I'll give that up. I had an event in my life that used to take up uh, 10 to 12 hours a week of my time. And there was nothing wrong with it necessarily, but God says, you know, you could spend a lot more time with me, especially two days a week that that event happened. <laughs> he says, would you give it up? First couple of times, I go, no, I enjoy, I enjoy this event, God. I don't want to give it up. And I finally just said, God, yes, I'm going to give it up. Oftentimes, that's what God does to us. He goes, are you willing to give up something not because it's sinful, but it takes time away from him. Which, if you think about it, almost makes it sinful. If my choice is to do this or spend time with God, my answer probably should be, I'm going to spend time with you. Now, if we take that to an extreme, that means we're doing, spending all our time 24-7 with God, uh, seven days a week, you know, 365 a year, which is what the God Bible tells us to do anyway, but it's actually not practical in many ways. I've got to go to work and earn a living. I've got to do it. Can, but can God be part of that day? Yes. I can make him part of my day no matter what I am doing if I start my day right. I start my day right with God and then I bring him into my day and my day starts to become sanctified. It starts to be lifted up for him. And I'm now able to look around me and say, God, what is it you want me to do? How do I edify people? How do I build people up? How do I encourage people? And you know, this is very important for us as we go forward in all of this stuff in my, in my life. And then in verse 6, Paul goes, says, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner. I am not to take advantage of any other Christian, any brother or sister. I'm not to go out and take advantage of them. If I am loving people the way that I, God loves me, I'm not going to take from them anything that's not due. And then he goes on very interestingly, he says, because that the Lord is the avenger of such as we have forewarned you and testified. He goes, if you take advantage of people, God is going to bring judgment. And God is warning us. We are to love one another. We're to build one another up. We're to edify one another and treat people the way God treats us. And this is the valuable thing. As we get to know God more and get to know him better, we should be treating others better with every day that we learn how God treats us. We are to apply that way that God treats us to others. When Newton wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet this sound that saved a wretch like I, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You know, he understood his sinfulness. He was a slave trader. And he got to the place where he really understood how evil he was and that God still loved him. And he then applied that love to others. 
And this is what we have to really begin to understand. The grace that God shows us. The forgiveness that God shows us. The clothing that he has put on us. And then as we get to really understand who he is with us, we apply that with other people. And when we can really learn that, that is when we are really showing Christ to others. And we will see people looking at us differently. And they look at us and saying, wow, uh, I don't really understand this, but you do seem to genuinely love me. You genuinely seem to forgive me. Are we going to be perfect examples on it? Unfortunately not. But we all know what it's like to be loved by other Christians. And they show us God's love. They show us his forgiveness when we go, you're forgiven. You are, you are loved. God loves you, and I'm going to sh do the best I can to express that. And sometimes we're doing it only because God says to do it. You know, we, if you remember in the cross and the switchblade, Nikki Cruz tells uh, David Wilkerson that I'm going to cut you up into 150 pieces or something. And David's answer is simple, and every piece will say, God loves you. David was, uh, Nikki was upset because he kept telling him, Jesus loves you. God loves you. And that David's answer back, when, and every piece is going to say that God loves you. Is that our expression to people that no matter how they threaten us, no matter what they do, we express God's love to them? It's tough. It's not easy. And there are some people that just know how to press our buttons and get under our skin and try to make it that it's difficult to love them. And God is saying, I want you to love them anyway. And the hard thing is, many times it's family and other Christians that know how to push our buttons. That, and our family tends to know that, and it's, it's so crazy. Why do people who love us want to push our buttons to try to show us, that, to, to manipulate us, and I don't know. It's the flesh, the sinful nature, I'm sure. We all do it. We all, we all push the buttons of those people that we love. And I don't know why it does. Maybe it's a power trip. I don't know. But you know, it happens all the time. And it's where we need to learn to grow, learn to be more forgiving, more loving, even when somebody's pushing our buttons and trying to get us upset. Because the world's going to do so as well. The world wants to test our love. Is it real? And I think our family does the same thing. Is your love for me truly real? And, they, and on one side they know it, but on the other side they want to know it. And they're going, I'm going to keep pushing these buttons. Whoops, you got mad at me. You must not really love me as much as you're saying that you love me. And that gives people an uncomfortable position. Our goal is to love and to love them in spite of whatever it is they do. To love our enemies. Do good to those who despitefully use you, Jesus said. None of those things are easy. When we're being mistreated, our flesh wants to get back. And here's what Paul says is that God is the avenger. God is our defender. The more we understand that he wants to defend us, the easier life gets to be. I just put people in God's hands. Do I do it perfectly? Absolutely not. Do you? Absolutely not. But the more I say, God, they're in your hands, I'm just going to love them. I can be kind to them. I can show grace 
because ultimately who are they attacking is not me. They're attacking God in me. They're attacking the love of God through me. The mercy and grace that I'm showing that is God's through me, they're actually attacking God. And if I can really start understanding that it's not me that's being attacked, it's God in me that's being attacked, I can just step back and say, God, I want to love them more. I want to forgive them more. And it's not easy. Believe me, I understand. It is not easy. When Jesus says, love those who despitefully use you, turn your cheek and, and love those who are mean to you, he understood himself. He was not telling you to do something easy. But you know, it is what he did. He always showed kindness to those that needed the grace. Now, the ones he was hard on were the self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisees and scribes who were living in their own righteousness and trying to pretend to be something they weren't. He was hard on them. There is times when we need to be hard on people, but make sure that God is telling you to do it. I'm the type that if I'm going to err, I want to err on the side of grace. I'm going to give grace to people more often than not because I don't, I'm not Jesus. I don't know people's hearts. He had the ability to attack people and know that he was attacking them completely in righteous attack. I can't do that. Sometimes I know that people are being self-righteous and I can go after them on that, but you know what? I'm going to be very careful. I'm not going to be Jesus calling them whitewashed sepulchers, uh, vipers, all these things that he called people. Why? Because he knew their heart. He knew that they weren't being righteous. You look at Nicodemus, a Pharisee that came to Jesus in the middle of the night to talk to him. How gentle he was with Nicodemus. But he really wasn't all that nice either. He goes, you must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, how can a man enter his womb? And he goes, you're a teacher and you don't even understand the basic things that I'm teaching you? He wasn't, he wasn't being mean to them, but he was also coming across very hard. You know, I'm teaching you something simple and you're not understanding it? He goes, you must be born of water and spirit, this, the word of God and the spirit of God. You, know, you must be born of these and you must be born again. He goes, the father has sent the son to save and the son has not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him will be saved. And God gently, Jesus gently taught Nicodemus, even though he was hard. And there's a the place for hardness. You know, we're going to teach that sin is sin. We're going to teach that sin is wrong. We're not going to accuse and, and criticize people, but we're not going to say that you can just go out and sin. This is what Paul has said in here. He goes, you're not going out to live in sin. He goes, you are called to be holy and righteous. But the power to do so is because the Holy Spirit indwells in us and as Galatians 2.20 goes, he crucifies our flesh so that he can live out of us and he lives in us, changing who we are so that we become more like him with every passing day. So that I am not living in the lust of evil desires, I am living in the desire to serve him. And this is the beauty of what is going on. And it goes, for God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. 
God has not, has not called us to say, okay, you can just do whatever you feel like doing. Paul, Paul in Romans told us, you know, grace, where, grace, uh, where sin abounds, grace does more abound. And then he goes on, and people, he, he knew what people were saying. Well, if that means if grace is going to abound because of sin, does that mean we should go out and sin so that grace abounds? And he says, God forbid. We all have God's need of grace. We don't need to go out and sin just so we can get God's grace because we are needing his grace every day. Because if we truly understood his grace and understood who we are, we know that we don't deserve anything but his grace. Even when we've been walking with God for 400 years and we've drawn really close to him, we still only deserve his grace because we're still not perfect. And we cannot be perfect until he totally crucifies every bit of our flesh. Now, only two people have seemed to have gone so close to God that God has taken them home early, and that was Enoch and Elijah. And, you know, Enoch, it says, walked with God, and God took him home, just raptured him, just took him home. Elijah, taken in a chariot of fire. Why? Because apparently he walked so close to God that God says, okay, we're just going to take you home. These are the only two people that are recorded in the Bible that have never died. There is another set of people that will, never, that will not go through death in some point in the future, which we'll talk about at the end of this chapter, and that is when Jesus comes and he calls his church home. That day is coming soon, we believe. The disciples believed that it was in their day and that they missed it. 2,000 years later, we're still saying Jesus is coming soon and he's going to call us home one day. There is coming a day when he's calling his people home and we will just leave this world and be raptured out of this world and be spending eternity with him. And the beauty of that, this, this chapter is one of those verses, that this chapter at the end of this chapter is all about the rapture of the church. It's the strongest set of verses that are going to talk about us being called away and being taken out. And he says, the dead will go first. The dead in Christ will go first, and then the rest of us will be taken with him. And the beauty of God saying, you're mine, and knowing that we will be glorified at that point in time where we, where we have a glorified, perfect body that will never be separated from God, that will not be tempted by sin, and we will not have a sin nature to sully our decisions. The problem that most of us have are we make, even when we do good things for God, we often do it for the wrong reasons. Well, God, I'm going to do this because I think it's what you want me to do. God says, well, okay, I'm glad you're doing good, but you're not doing it for the right reason. God, I'm going to do good things so others see you and, and will be appreciating. God says, okay, I like that reason, but it's the wrong reason. If we're motivated by anything other than just being servants of God we're doing the good for the wrong reason and this is important for us and it's hard believe me I understand it's hard because everything we do in our sin nature is tainted by that sin nature even when I desire to do it so that I get rewarded I'm doing it for the wrong reason God I'm doing this so you reward me in heaven wrong reason because I'm still doing it because of something 
when I do things for purity, I just do it because God says to do it. And there's times when we do these. There are the times when we're not aware of what we're doing. And we just look and, go, and we look back and go, wow, I did what? Wow, I, I actually did the right thing without having to think about it, without, without thinking about what I was doing. And God says, that's your reward. That's where you've done it the right way. You know, I, you get into teaching and you just teach and God takes over and you're teaching. You're just nice to somebody. You're witnessing to somebody. You're, you start out by just talking to somebody and next thing you know, you're witnessing to them and sharing God's love with them. And you're going, wow, I did that for the right reason. I wasn't trying to do it. I wasn't trying to go out and, and, and do this. I want to read God's word. I want to pray. I want to praise God. I want to serve him. Those are when we're starting to do it for the right reasons. And then, unfortunately, we start realizing what we're doing, and then we start doing it for the wrong reasons. <laughs> and we start doing it for the wrong reasons, and God says, would you go back to doing it for the right reasons? Would you just live according to the Spirit, being crucified? And this is the importance of living for him. And we want to walk this fine line because God tells us to go out and serve him. He tells us to work at being pure and being sanctified. And the very funny thing in this next set of verses that we're going to study next week, he's also going to tell us, I want you to, to strive to work to not strive to work. And it's kind of an interesting thing because we get into it and he goes, I want you to strive and try hard to not strive to work hard. And it's kind of an interesting statement, and we'll cover that next week, because, but it's very interesting in how he puts it. But in verse 8, he says, He therefore that despises or nullifies or disregards or refuses <laughs> to be sanctified, is all those words, despises not man, but despises God, who hath given us his Holy Spirit. God says, if you refuse to do this thing, you're really not bothering man. David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. And his sin that he was commenting on was the murder of Uriah. Now, the murder of Uriah was a pretty big sin against Uriah. But David's saying, God, it was really only you that I have sinned. Yes, I hurt Uriah. I hurt Uriah's family. But God, the sin was against you. And God says when we reject his statement, it's not against man. When we get angry at a person, we get upset, we refuse to forgive them, it's not the person that's being attacked. It's not the person that's being hurt. We are defying God. Our sin is against God. And this is a pretty big deal that we defy not the person. I refuse to forgive somebody when God forgives me and God has forgiven them, the sin is not against them. And how many times have you decided not to forgive somebody, do you realize that they're not hurt by you're not, you're not forgiving them in most cases? You go later on and people have gone back to ask for forgiveness of something and the person goes, what are you talking about? You have been bound up by this unforgiving spirit for years. God, I am not going to forgive that person. They hurt me and they did it on purpose. And you go back and you finally say, 
God, I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. And they look at you and go, what are you talking about? I don't even remember the event. And you have been unforgiving of them for years, decades. And they just look at you going, well, I'm sorry. I didn't, know, I didn't even know you were mad at me. Yeah, I didn't realize that we didn't, we didn't seem very close, but I didn't even realize that you were mad at me. I didn't realize that you thought that I had done something wrong. And if they're godly, they're going to say, please forgive me. I didn't realize it, and I'm sorry that I did it. And, but you know, when we are unforgiving, we are binding ourselves with chains. We're not really binding the other person with chains. Jesus said that, we are, that God will forgive us as we forgive others. Does that mean he's not going to forgive us when we don't forgive it? No, but we're not going to experience that forgiveness. We are bound up because of unforgiveness. And we need to be able to forgive. We need to be able to show that love. If there is anybody that you have not shown forgiveness to and you have refused to forgive, talk to God about it today and get it right with God. Then go to that person and ask them to forgive you for not forgiving them. Because I'm going to tell you, they probably don't remember that you've not forgiven them. They're probably not bothered at all by it. They may not even know that they have done something to you. Go and ask that forgiveness. Seek forgiveness. At the very least, go before God and confess that you have unforgiveness towards somebody. And you know what? Even worse, if it's unforgiveness towards yourself, forgive yourself. God has already forgiven you. I have heard more than one person tell me, well, I know that God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. What an arrogant, unholy statement to make. You have put yourself above God. You have actually committed idolatry. If you cannot forgive yourself when you know that God can forgive you, you're saying, God, my standards are higher than your standards. God, I am higher than you. I am bigger than you. I have a higher standard than you. We need to get rid of that kind of idolatry in our life. And I know that most people don't think of that as idolatry. They're thinking, well, God, I know who I am, and I know, I know why I did it. And God's saying, yes, I know why you did it too. You did it because you're a sinner. And I have cleansed you of your sin. I have crucified your, your sin nature, and I have cleansed you with the righteousness of Christ. I have forgiven you. Forgive yourself. And you might have to look in the mirror and say, self, I forgive you. And then go to God and say, God, help me learn to forgive. Because it is important. If we can't forgive ourselves, we will never have fellowship with God the way we're supposed to. We need to be able to forgive ourselves. We need to be able to forgive others because there is no fellowship with God with unforgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Unforgiveness is one of those big ones, and we need to get into that and say, God, I need to help me forgive myself. God, and if you have no problem forgiving yourself, praise God, thank you. God, I need you to help me forgive this other person that I'm having trouble forgiving. Most people have a person or themselves that they have not forgiven. We need to get those things cleared out of our life. Huh? Oh, Satan loves it. Satan loves to divide. Well, you know, and 
Too many times we'll say things like, well, I'll forgive them when they ask. Well, you know what? They may not even know that they've done something that's hurt you. They're never going to ask in many cases. I am very happy that God did not wait to forgive me until I asked. Because I wouldn't have. Without Jesus coming, there is no way that I would have asked for forgiveness. Without him coming and convicting me of my sin, I would not have asked him for forgiveness. We need to go to people and say, I forgive you. I know you may not know what you did, but I have forgiven you. I want to have fellowship with you. We need to do the same thing for ourselves. Forgive ourselves. The more we learn to forgive, the more our fellowship will be drawn together and the less Satan will have to attack. Because Satan loves to divide. That is his whole purpose. Why do we have all the denominations that we have? Because he has divided churches. You know, and there's and there's these old joke. You know, there's a guy you know on a desert island, and he has his church, and then he has a second church, and they go, "Why do you have a second church?" Well, that other church was just full of hypocrites. Well, you were the only one in it. I know, but I had to go to another church. You know, why Satan loves to divide, loves to keep us separated. Our job is to bring unity in Christ, unity within ourselves, with us and God and unity within the church and unity with the other with the world not in a fellowship that says i'm going to do what's wrong but that we love the world because god loves them not what they do not how they do it but we reach out to the world to draw them to christ by showing god's love not to participate in their sin not to say their sins okay but you know if we don't love the the world we have no desire to reach out to them. There's no desire to evangelize if we're not loving individuals in the world. Our love for our family should be such that we want to see them saved. Our love for our friends should be such that we want to see them saved. Because the consequence of not being saved is to go to hell. And there was a comedian one time that was talking about how much do, Christian, how much do Christians hate in individuals to not share the, the gospel with them. If they truly believe that the gospel is the only way to heaven, we should be sharing that with everybody because if we don't, in reality, just as like a community, community, comedian was saying, we're saying, I hate you, I want you to go to hell. We can't have that be part of our life. We should love people enough to say, I don't care whether they get mad at me because I'm giving them the gospel. I don't care if they're going to not like it. I'm going to give them the gospel message because the alternative is that they will spend eternity in hell. I was looking through a hymn book and it has a song that calls Who Cares? And it talks about Christians not caring enough to share the gospel message to those going to hell. And it was a song that very much impacted me. I don't know what the song is. I don't know what it sounds like, but the song, the words impacted me. Are we people that care enough to go to the world and say, I do not want you to go to hell? Very important for us to be able to share that message with people and to go out and hold that very strongly with people because the alternative for not being saved is hell. Once we're saved, we're going to heaven. And anybody who's not saved is going to hell. Anybody who has rejected Jesus Christ will spend eternity in hell. 
Eternity is a long, long time. We get to spend eternity with him. We need to be able to share. You know, and this song mentioned it, and it's one thing. There's a picture very often in some of the old-time uh, pastors have taught it. At the white throne judgment, people looking up at the Christians and saying, why didn't you tell me about this? You knew it was coming. Why didn't you tell me? I almost picture that being something that can happen. People looking up and looking over in there and seeing, the, seeing us over in the, in the good side. You knew about this and you didn't share? Paul said, I am guilty of no man's blood. He goes, I have told everybody the gospel message. Now, I don't know that he literally told everybody, but Paul, Paul was an evangelist. He told lots of people. We need to pray, God, help me not be guilty of any man's blood or woman's blood. No person's blood. Lord, give me the desire to teach, to share the gospel. And it doesn't have to be, you know, full-blown Billy Graham preaching an evangelistic message, but it needs to be very clear. Without God, you're going to hell. And make sure it's in a loving manner. You know, the problem most of us do when we first get saved, we go to our family and friends and go, you got to get saved because I don't want you to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. And we, and we attack them and drive them further away from us. But we need to go and express it in love. You need to accept Jesus Christ because the alternative is a life, eternal life without him in hell. And understand that it's a big deal. And we need to be able to express that with people. We need to fully grab hold of it ourselves. Lord, we just ask you to bless this night. We ask you to bless us as we open. Lord, help us to see ourselves for who you say we are. Help us to get the desire to go out and share with others. Help us to seek you with all of our hearts and to be sanctified and to let you live through us and crucify our flesh and help us to listen more and more to what you desire from us. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.